You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is your host, Stephen Roach. This is season five, episode three. Socrates, I think it was, said that wisdom begins in wonder. And if wisdom begins in wonder, maybe the secret is to live a life more awake to wonder. Harris III is an award-winning illusionist and communicator. And in recent years, his career has grown into becoming one of America's most sought-out speakers, storytellers, creative consultants, and event curators. In 2015, Harris founded the Astoria Collective, which is a production company that creates meaningful and transformative experiences for people and brands through events, films, and digital media. Harris's unique form of storytelling attracts audiences and holds their attention, not only as a master illusionist, but also a highly effective and memorable keynote speaker who helps audiences rediscover wonder. I recently sat down with Harris and talked with him about his work as an illusionist and what it means to create moments of wonder that inspire and move people to a place of transformation. No matter what your creative interests may be, nurturing a lifestyle of wonder lies at the heart of maintaining creative vitality. I look forward to sharing this conversation with you. And for the patrons of our podcast, you can enjoy an additional interview segment with Harris on his experience as an entrepreneur and the importance of learning from our failures. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for links to my free ebook, Five Creativity Killers and How to Avoid Them, and for tickets to the Breath in the Clay Creative Arts Gathering coming up March 22nd through 24th in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. This is our return to wonder with illusionist and storyteller Harris III. Well, Harris, thank you so much for joining us on Makers and Mystics. We're excited to have you on the show. Man, I'm excited to be here. It's always an honor to talk to intelligent people doing meaningful work. So, yeah, man, <laughs> I'm excited to be here. Well, I'll admit you are the first illusionist that we've had on the podcast. So I'm, I'm really <laughs> thrilled to see what exactly that means. It's uh, a great question. I don't know what that means. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a mysterious way to make a living for sure. Yeah. Um, Really, we just say illusionist because there's so many people out there that are still scared of magicians for some reason. Um, you know, not much of a difference between a magician and an illusionist. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's why illusionist and not magician, just so it doesn't scare people away. Otherwise, they think I'm like demonic or a sorcerer or something. <laughs> well, we'll stick with illusionist then. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, tell us some about who you are for some of our listeners that may not have encountered your work. Uh, tell us who you are. I don't know who I am, Stephen. <laughs> um, I was hoping that by the time we got done with this interview, you could help me figure that out. We can work on that. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've been doing magic for a little over 20 years now. I got a magic kit for Christmas from my grandmother when I was nine years old. And it was not at all what I was interested in. It's not at all what I asked for for Christmas that year. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I remember asking for a baseball glove. I was obsessed with baseball at the time. And 
ended up with this box of magic tricks and this thing that I initially thought was stupid um, completely changed my life out of the, completely out of the blue. Wow. Um, so fast forward through a lot of years later, um, I've made most of my living traveling to about 40 countries now, performing magic for a couple million people live. And um, it has taught me a lot along the way. Um, I have lost my wonder and gotten it back again and lost it again and, and only to rediscover it. And so I'm as passionate about magic as I've ever been. And then with that has come, you know, venturing into a lot of other different things as an entrepreneur and just as a leader. And yeah, there's a lot to unpack. I don't know where you want to start. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, you mentioned finding your wonder and then losing your wonder. And I, I believe I read that that tends to be a central theme of the work that you do is helping people see the possibilities around them and helping people wonder out loud. And I'd, I'd love it if you could tell us some about what that means to you. Yeah, and wonder is, uh, it's almost like we have this little switch inside of us and it's like a light switch on the wall and we're all born with that switch turned on and it's, you could almost call it a wonder switch as cheesy as that sounds, but um, you know, we're born kind of wide awake to wonder. We believe in possibility. We see magic everywhere when we're little kids. And everything in the world is conspiring against wonder in an attempt to crush it. Um, that's probably because the matrix is more real than we realize. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, everything is trying to turn that switch off. And, and for most of us, I think it gets shut down and turned off when we're little kids through some sort of childhood wound. It could be a bully on a playground, a teacher, a coach, a parent, father figure, whatever it is, something crushes our wonder. And sadly, a lot of us go the rest of our lives without ever turning that wonder switch back on. Our wonder gets crushed and it gives birth to cynicism. And that's the state we live in for the rest of our lives. There's some of us who, you know, that switch gets turned on and off throughout our lives. We have to fight to keep it on. Something turns it off. That's more of my story. Um, and then, you know, the goal is to, how do we, how do we keep that wonder alive? How do we keep it awake in us? Because if that switch is turned on in the same way that a light switch in a room is turned on, it sort of changes the way we see. It changes the possibility that we're able to see. It illuminates space and the world around us. And, um, we kind of go from, from uh, cynicism to being hopeful. We go from not thinking anything is possible to seeing possibility everywhere. I think that that switch also changes how we use our imagination. I think that, I used to think that imagination was this childlike thing that we used as kids that we stop using as we grow up. And uh, I don't think that's the case. I think we just, we. When, when wonder dies, it changes how our imagination starts to operate. And so I watch adults fear and worry about things every single day, even though there's no evidence of those things actually um, pointing to happening. And so I began to realize that worry is just this sort of misuse of our imaginations. And so I've realized when wonder is dead, we use our imagination to worry and fear. And when wonder is alive, we use our imaginations to dream and to create. Um, and so, yeah, I think it impacts everything. Wonder transforms how we lead teams, our creative process, how we parent, how we raise our kids. There's nothing that wonder doesn't touch or impact. It reminds me of a phrase that I believe I read from you on your website, but you took the phrase, 
seeing is believing, and you kind of flipped、mm. it on its head to say that what we believe changes what we see. I'd, I'd love it if you could tell me more about how what we believe changes what we perceive. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different ways to look at that. One of my favorite quotes is a real doll quote where he said that those who don't believe in magic will never find it. And what I realize is that sometimes you have to believe something before you can see it. And this is true of everything from how we're deceived, how we lie to ourselves、uh, via confirmation bias, because we have a tendency to see what we want to see,、um, to looking at even something as mysterious as. You know, this divine being that we call God. It's like, I don't, if you talk to someone, they're like, well, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. It's like, that's, that's not really <laughs> how it works because once you believe in him, you see him everywhere, you know?、Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes you have to believe something before you can see it. And I, I arrived at that concept just by discovering that the opposite、um, is not true because we think that believing is, or that seeing is believing, right? But being an illusionist has taught me that. Our senses are pretty easily fooled. It's not because we aren't smart. It's not because we're stupid people.、It's、just most people don't understand how the principles of deception work. Just because that's not something we study. You probably didn't take a magic trick class in school. No one ever pulled you aside and be like, hey, let's, I just want to make sure you're filled in on how the principles of deception and trickery work、uh, so that you can guard against that. And so we're, we're, we're pretty bad at human beings at having a basic understanding or even awareness of. How easily we are deceived, and the fact that there are things and people in the world that are trying to trick and deceive us. And I would say in my early 20s, I started noticing this correlation between how magic tricks work and how all lies work that the principles of deception are pretty universal.、And、what I mean by that is that, you know, the same, the same way that I trick people on stage with a magic trick is the exact same way that we trick people with political speeches and how we sell them everything from cars to makeup. Really, the only thing that would determine whether you label someone a really persuasive leader、um, or a con man is their motive. It's not necessarily the skill set or the principles they're using. They're actually using the same principles of leadership and persuasion.、Um, mm. It's just those are also principles of deception in the wrong hands with the wrong motive. And so, studying all that made me realize well, gosh, if I can make something levitate on stage, which means I'm not actually making something levitate. I'm making something appear as if it's levitating, and then people are convinced they actually saw it. That means that seeing is not always believing, because what you see is not always what you get. So, if our senses can be deceived, if we're easily fooled, seeing is not always believing.、Um, but I wonder if believing is seeing. And there's actually multiple studies out where scientists have partnered with magicians to understand how our senses are wired to our brains, and they confirm that every single time that what we believe changes what we see. So, you know, practical real life example if you, if you have lies that have crept into your mind and your worldview, and you're standing in front of the mirror getting ready in the morning, and you look in the mirror at that reflection of yourself, what you believe to be true about yourself may not actually be true. It could be rooted in lies and deception, but it doesn't matter if you believe it's true because what you believe to be true is going to change the reflection that you see. Which is why you talk to people all the time and you're like, man, why can't this person see how amazing they are? Or why can't she see how beautiful she is? Why does she stand in front of the mirror and feel like she's a loser and her life is worthless and that she'll never amount to anything? It's because her belief system is informing what she's seeing, not vice versa. So it's a, it's a powerful concept for sure. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it, just hearing you say a lot of those things, it just kind of reveals the depth and the heart even behind the work that you're doing. And that was one of my other questions is, you know, that it, it seems like that your work with illusions has a real spiritual depth to it and that it, it hints at dealing with our own inner illusions. And it's not just a show, but it is meant to reveal something about our inner life, which I think is such a fascinating approach to using magic and illusions. But I wanted to ask you about one specific act that you do. Okay. Because it kind of hints back to one of my own heroes, who would be Harry Houdini. <laughs> you know, tell me about your straitjacket act, and what is that meant to convey, or what what's at the heart of of that particular illusion? You know, when I was when I was twenty one, I had made a million dollars performing magic shows around the world. Um, I had pursued the American dream, so I, I had escaped my little small town that I grew up in in Southeast Tennessee, moved to the big city of Nashville, uh, <laughs> which was not that big at the time, but is growing pretty rapidly and becoming a bigger city. And I got married that year and um, young at 21 and built a nice house in a nice suburb, Franklin, Tennessee. It's one of the wealthier suburbs of our state. And I'd filled up our fancy house with fancy stuff and had two nice expensive cars in the driveway. and. I had basically done everything that the world had told me thousands of times a day that I needed to do in order to be happy. And for some reason, just went to bed every single night feeling totally empty. And it's th that moment where you realize that you've been lied to after you're kind of like pissed off and angry and you're like, how did this happen? How did I let this happen? It kind of leads you on this journey of self-discovery. And more than anything else, if I were to, to describe how I felt, I felt trapped, um, which is weird because I wasn't in prison, but I, but I had these all these like lies that were trapping and entangling me because they were basically keeping me from living out the life that I was supposed to live out. And so, you know that that old adage, uh, I don't even. I don't, probably don't even want to call it that, that piece of scripture <laughs> where Jesus is like, hey, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's ironic yeah. because when he said that, the way people responded was, what are you talking about? We've never been a slave to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? And it's a really interesting response because I think most of us live under the illusion that we're already free. Um, and it took me a long time to realize, wow, if the truth can set us free, that must imply that lies and deception can trap and entangle us. And so I found myself feeling that way. And so, you know, as a storyteller, I was like, how, how can I not just say to people, hey, be careful, you know, the lies will trap and entangle you, but how can I help them empathize with how my life felt? How can I take them back to understanding this is, this is how I felt when I was trapped and entangled in lies and deception? And what, what might it look like to create a picture of someone trying to find freedom? And I think we think that there's just some sort of little magic wand that you wave over someone who's trapped in something. So it's like you picture someone wrapped in chains and a magician walks up and waves a magic wand and all the chains just fall off of them. Um, and that's not, I don't know if that's an accurate picture of a spiritual journey. Usually it involves pain and heartache and some additional suffering to, to take the difficult steps of faith um, to go from being entangled and trapped to freedom. And so, yeah, to me that straitjacket escape just became a picture of giving people a little glimpse into my journey of what it felt like to go from feeling entangled in lies and deception to discovering the freedom that comes from knowing truth. 
I love that you consider yourself a storyteller uh, in the work that you're doing. It's a very visual form of storytelling. We all are, <laughs> mm-hmm. whether we own it or not. You know, so my uh, my awareness of the fact that I'm a storyteller and, and referring to myself as that um, doesn't mean that I wasn't a storyteller before that, because um, it's what we're all doing. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There was a book that came out a few years ago called The Story Creatures, and it really argued the point that at the core of who we are, narrative is how we engage the world around us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and I think even when you're talking about when people are just bound up in lies that they've believed about themselves, it's really a narrative that they've embraced about who you are. And it seems that a lot of the work that you're doing no pun intended, kind of unravels that or kind of opens up that straitjacket and and gives people another perspective to consider. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the hope, right? Is it's, it's the goal is to always get people to pause and just ask the question, is it possible that the story that I'm telling myself isn't true? Um, Mm -hmm. And man, that's a powerful question. And yes, I agree. It is the, it is, you know, there are computers that run off of Apple My phone runs off of iOS. Some people's phones run off Android. Those are operating systems. Those are like programming languages that machines run off of. Our brains run off of narrative and story. It's the operating system of our brains. It's how we organize information and make sense of everything. And you can't think outside of the terms of narrative. Um, You can try, but you can't. Um, Because even cavemen sitting around a fire... It's like, well, don't eat that berry. And it's like, <laughs> how do you tell someone not to eat that berry? Hey, uh, so I was walking through the woods, and I walked by this bush and saw this berry, and I ate it, and it made me sick. Like, you, even if it's not a very compelling or interesting story, we still communicate with each other through the terms of narrative. And so we can't, we can't not do that, which means that everything is a story. Everyone is a storyteller. And even those who aren't aware of the fact they're telling stories – Everyone around you is telling themselves a story about what they feel like you're saying to them verbally and non-verbally. So if that's true, um, and it is, then maybe we should all just be a little bit more intentional about becoming better storytellers so we can make sure that the stories we're telling are true and that the stories people are hearing and telling themselves are true. Well, one thing that you said earlier that I just kind of wanted to emphasize again, I love when you said that worry is a misuse of the imagination. That's that's such a powerful phrase. Hmm. And I just began to think that as artists and as creatives and for people of faith, it would seem that we almost have a responsibility to live lives of wonder. And for me, that would seem to be an appropriate use of the imagination and living out these narratives that you're talking about that resonate with truth and resonate with a, with a pure form of, of what it means to be human. For sure. I mean, the Bible has plenty to say on how we live our lives um, by our fear and worry. Um, and we're just, gosh, it's far more compelling to ask ourselves, what if, what if we used our imaginations to dream and to create um, how much more of a redemptive role would that play in the world versus jumping on this cynical, fearful bandwagon of using our imaginations to worry all the time. And honestly, I would even go so far as to say that our generation 
seems to have the real issue of cynicism that's just <laughs> that's prevalent in our culture yeah. and i guess uh i guess from a certain perspective i can understand why uh, that cynicism is there but for me it almost feels like that the role of the artist is is to combat that cynicism or to at least offer an alternative perspective to like you said to offer hope mm-hmm. uh, instead of cynicism for sure for sure yeah some of that is a result i think of of just being in the information age you know like if you look at uh some of the correspondence between magicians a hundred years ago and we have quite a bit of it in magic history um and there's there's it is all absent i've noticed of of venting from one magician to the other about the same things that magicians in 2019 are constantly venting about to each other so if you were to go walk a trade showroom floor at a magic convention with a thousand other magicians, which is a thing that exists, by the way, a lot of people aren't aware that that's like a real <laughs> thing. Um, you know, it's it's magicians having conversations with each other about like, yeah, the the moment that thing on stage disappeared, like the whole, I looked over at this group of teenagers and they immediately like pulled their phones out and you could tell they were Googling the secret or like, yeah, I did a magic show the other day and everyone in the audience after the show, they came up and they're all they wanted to do is just tell me that they figured out how I did, they did all the tricks and you know, they weren't even right. They just assumed that they had figured it out because the secret they had in their mind is plausible. And so therefore that must've been how I did it as, as if you would go up to the edge after a U2 concert and say, I totally know how you played that guitar solo. (laughs) Um, As if your, your knowledge of how something is done is equal to your ability to do it and make it beautiful in the same way that he did. Right. And so there seems Mm -hmm. to be this disconnect um, between what magicians today struggle with and what magicians from 100 years ago didn't struggle with. And I think that's because Mm -hmm. 100 years ago, no one cared. They just were in awe of there was so much magic happening all around them with the birth of technology and electricity and cars. and, And so people were very comfortable being in awe and wonder in response to something. Wonder was a very enjoyable, comfortable, daily experience. And I think as the information age took root, and then we started carrying around an encyclopedia in our pockets, um, you know, our those little magical devices have given us apparently, supposedly, the perceived ability to answer any question and solve any mystery. Mm. So if you don't understand how something works, you just reach in your pocket, you pull your phone, you Google it, you look it up, you read an article on Wikipedia, or you watch a 30-second YouTube video. And I think that there has been some psychological conditioning that has taken place, and that is we no longer have to feel the the discomfort that comes from being in a state of wonder. We don't have to feel the humility of being in a state of feeling like you were in awe of something. Because mm. wonder is its humbling. It says... There's, there's more than just you. It says there's something potentially greater and bigger than just you. Um, it says, um, hey, you sh- you, it's, it's okay for you to be amazed by this, and that is not as acceptable anymore, it feels like. And so I think in the process of the information age psychologically conditioning us, um, I think it has created this, like, oh, wow, I don't. I don't really feel like I can believe in anything or be in awe of anything that can't be explained in a 30-second YouTube video. Yeah. And so I, that's why I think our wonder has been so crushed and replaced with cynicism is because it's just rampant and we no longer have to feel wonder. Mm-hmm. And so therefore we don't get the values or benefits of feeling it on a regular basis because it feels so uncomfortable. Yeah. It's really interesting. It, 
it reminds me of a phrase that uh, Ravi Zacharias says, and and he wrote that the loss of wonder is the beginning of depravity. Mm. And, uh, you know, of course, that's like one of those mind-blowing Ravi Zacharias statements that yeah. just get you, you know, thinking. But it, it seems to be, it could be for all of the beautiful things that the information age has offered to us, uh, that one of the downsides of that is that it could as well create a sense of loss of wonder. Or like you're saying, um, that's really given me something to think about, you know? Yeah. It sounds like maybe he played with the old Socrates quote, because Socrates, I think it was him anyway, who said that wisdom begins in wonder. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder if he's like kind of reverse engineered that concept and figured, okay, if wonder's gone, what does that result in? Um, and, you know, I agree. If wisdom is the beginning of wonder, it doesn't take much looking around at a culture that feels like it's lacking in a lot of wisdom and going, man, if if we're lacking wisdom, maybe that's because we've lost our sense of wonder. Um which, which could mean that getting our wonder back is the beginning of everything we want, you know? I've, mm-hmm. I've been thinking about this lately, and maybe I'm rambling on this, um, but, you know, when we were little kids on the playground, we would always play like the, what would you wish for if you met a genie? Maybe it was because Aladdin had just come out when we were kids, and <laughs> we're like, well, what would my three wishes be if I had a genie? And... You know, the quintessential wish was to wish for more wishes, right? Because then you could have anything you want. <laughs> right. And I think the the adult equivalent of wishing for more wishes is basically saying to just wish for wisdom. Because, I mean, think about it. If you have wisdom, you can have basically anything you want. Wisdom would inform uh, your business choices and the choices you make as an entrepreneur. Wisdom would give you the ability to protect yourself against taking the wrong risks in life. It would give you the ability to make wise investment choices in your stock portfolio so you could retire well. Wisdom would give you the ability to be a perfect parent, right? So there's this constant story to our lives where we see all of the times that we didn't get what we wanted from our life is because we were lacking in wisdom. And it's the thing that you can't just like plug a cable into your brain and download, right? It seems to come from perspective and age and experience. And so... I just wish we could all have more wisdom. And if wisdom can give you the life that you want, and if wisdom begins in wonder, maybe the secret is to live a life more awake to wonder. Well, Harris, this has been an incredible conversation, and you've given me a lot to think about on the role of wonder and even our responsibility to live lives of wonder. And so I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and I look forward to seeing what comes up for you. Yeah, man. Appreciate all you're doing. Your work is important. It matters. Um, Appreciate you having me on. And as always, thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. These conversations are made possible by your patronage. If you'd like to support the podcast and join our creative collective, you can do so at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. Next week, our bi-weekly artist profile series will begin for season five, featuring guest host Marie Teilhard. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you very soon.